Okay, well, thank you guys for being here this morning. And um, I did not know, I have heard of Valentine's Day. I was not aware it was the day before Valentine's Day. I can appreciate that. That's fun. Girls prefer this holiday anyways, I think. Um, <laughs> yep, y'all let us know tomorrow if how it goes. Anyways, um, we are in Esther 5 this week, so if you want to go ahead and get ready to look in your Bibles in Esther 5, I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. Father God, thank you um, for today. Thank you for these women. As Ashley pointed out, how lucky are we um, that every Tuesday morning we get to gather in a group, a large group and then a small group of community, um, a community that is centered around you. Um, learning more about you and um, who you are. Father, thank you so much for that privilege. I pray that you would bless our time together this morning over food and fellowship, um, that you would bless our conversation. We love you. Amen. Okay, if you're in Esther 5. Um, the past couple weeks, Lisa and Kristen have touched on an idea of being in a middle place. Um, Esther 5, we're still kind of in the middle. But, like Kristen said last week, and I wish I had her slide, I should have asked, we are on that little dot that was in the middle. We are on an upward swing, um, but still kind of close to the middle. Um, so as we're learning about Esther 5 this morning, keep that in your brain. Um, if you read your lesson this week, you may already know the answer to this question. Does anybody know? Who's coming to dinner? Haman. Anybody else? Is it just him? Who's having the dinner? Esther, that's right. Okay. But often in reading this story, we may forget there is another person at dinner because if we believe that God is what? The per All right, ready? The purposeful author and hero of our story, that he defines our identity and invites us into a life of influence. If that's true, he's there too, right? So he is invited always, right? He's always <laughs> invited. Um, but this morning, instead of looking at the names of the people invited, we're going to take a different approach. We are going to consider and look at the hearts of the people that were invited. But before we do that, let's go back last week into Esther 4 and look at verses 15 and 16 to set us up for where we are. So Esther 4, 15 and 16 says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My, my, my maids and I will do the same, and then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So these verses are here, right, today, this morning, to remind us of what's at stake and where the mind and heart of Queen Esther might be. Well, must be. I would imagine she's pretty fearful and afraid. Um, she might be a little courageous, right? She may be on that, that train, but as of last week, we're not sure where she's at. So we're going to jump right in to Esther 5 and read verses 1 through 4. They say this, On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace, just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne, 
facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Then the king asked her, What do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. And Esther replied, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. There's a lot in these first four verses. I'm going to look right to the end and ask the question that many of you may have been asking. Why didn't she just come out and say it? Why didn't she ask? When he I mean, he opened the door. He gave her permission. I'm sure in your homework, I know there's a couple questions that were around this that you came up with a few answers, and there's probably a multitude of reasons she didn't immediately ask. Um, maybe she was afraid. Uh, maybe she didn't think it was the right timing. I would stick in that lane if I were you. Because what did she ultimately want to do? Ultimately, she wanted to expose Haman and his wickedness. And publicly in the king's courts was probably not the place to do it. If you remember in chapter 3, Haman was in great standing with the king as his most powerful official. So if he were to be publicly ashamed, I don't think it would have gone probably as well as we had hoped. And so if she was going to accomplish her task, she needed to come at it the right way. It seems like Israel's survival depends on her. So, who's coming to dinner? Well, our dinner guests this morning are bravery and courage, preparedness, faithfulness, God's sovereignty, and pride and hate. Side note for our note takers. I will bounce back and forth between these, so if you would like to make them into columns so you can get all your stuff in the right spot, I would recommend that. Um, As much as I would like for this to be neat, the chapter didn't set itself up for that, and so we're not going to do that today. (laughs) Okay. Are we there? Are we in our columns? Can I switch? (laughs) All right. We're going to jump ahead. Let's look at preparedness. So. We have just learned from last week in chapter 4 that she prepared herself how? By prayer and fasting. And this is, I mean, that's some serious preparation. Three days of no eating and no drinking with everyone in the capital city doing the same thing. What else does she do to prepare? In verse 1, we see she changes her clothes. I would say this was not a vain attempt at looking better, but more a, this is what's appropriate to wear in the king's courts and to be accepted in the place that I'm trying to be. Um, It probably also added another layer of confidence for that great task that was ahead of her. How many of us tend to dress for the occasion we're going to, right? It, It helps walking in the room knowing we're dressed appropriately. Sarah Louise. She's our icon in that. Um, So 
when, when the first time I read that, I was like, huh, it's interesting she changes her clothes. Why does she do that? And I think we can tend to make it about just looking pretty. But I think also, it would, like I said, it would not have been appropriate for her to come dressed differently. And at this point, she's remembering what? That he has to accept her. And if he doesn't, what's going to happen to her? She could die, right? So this is pretty, this is pretty big. All right, let's move on to bravery. This feels obvious to me, but how much, how much courage and bravery does she need to walk into this courtroom? Like all of it plus, right? Everything she could possibly conjure up, which by the way, she couldn't have conjured it up, right? The bravery required of her is something she could never have manifested, right? It is something that God gave to her. So I want to make a point of that when you're thinking of your own bravery and courage, to not depend on yourself for that. There was something very difficult asked of her here. And her walk across that hall, although may it have been short, I would say it was no doubt very perilous. All right, let's move on to your other column of God's sovereignty. So in verse 2, we are at a very early pivot point in this story. What is King Xerxes going to do? Well, she has taken her first step, that hardest step. But once she's done it, what happens? He holds out his scepter and he accepts her. And right here in this moment of the story is where we see a shattering of the anticipated fear. This is really, really important here because she is no longer being held back by any fear. God has done what he said he was going to do and met her where she was. And we, we do need to remember her fear was rightful, right? Death was very prevalent in this society, especially for women who didn't listen. And this fear that she had seems to be gone. Her approach to the king is accepted. We've looked at this proverb before, and we're going to look at it again this morning because this is where God's sovereignty comes into play. Sure, maybe he thought she looked pretty that morning. Maybe he was like, oh, I haven't seen you in 30 days. This could be fun. I don't know. But I think the bigger thing at play here is that God needed him to accept her, right? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. So in verse 3, we read that he still, she still has favor in his eyes. He appears to be pleased to see her. And she has found that God would still use his favor, the king's, her favor, sorry, with the king for his glory. Another thing to note, he offers her half of the kingdom here. And um, just so you know, that wasn't literal. <laughs> he didn't mean that. Um, it was more of an idiom. He probably never would have given her half the kingdom if she had asked. I think she knew that as well. Okay, so she wasn't going to, the big ask wasn't going to happen yet. It was just a saying. So side note there. All right, now let's look at verse 4. Guess who's coming to dinner? Who got the Evite? His name is Haman, okay? And Haman is an introduction to us of our first unexpected guest or unwanted guest to dinner, pride. 
we'll spend a second here talking about how he got invited to the dinner. So, obviously, we know Queen Esther needed him to be there. Haman knew he got invited because of who he was. At least that's what he thought. He was big stuff. Number two, this is a big deal, okay? Because normally, kings and queens would die separately, so to be invited to a dinner with both of them was huge. This kind of stuff wasn't heard of. We think, oh, you're inviting your friend to dinner. This is great. Like, no, the magnitude of this is much bigger than just a simple invitation, okay? They don't do these kinds of things. So we'll come back to pride in a second. Let's look back at her bravery. (sighs) This is a big ask of Queen Esther. The idea of a banquet with the king and his second in command, like I said a second ago, wasn't heard of. Much less, like, okay, like I just said a second ago, they don't normally dine together, much less asking another man to be the guest. Um, This is going to sound funny considering what happened to Queen Vashti, but Persian officials were apparently very protective of their wives. I think we might think of protection a little differently, but I think it's more they were possessive of their wives. Okay, so how was she being brave? Well, she entered the court. She asks for a banquet. Back to God's sovereignty. In verse 5, there is another seemingly small thing occurring here, and this is where God works. If you read the verse, you'll notice that the casually or how casually the king refers to Esther. This is the only place he calls her Esther out loud instead of Queen Esther. This is an example to us of how comfortable he was with the ask, with the people involved, which is huge for her. She needs him relaxed. She needs him um, confident in her. And this is a way for us to see that he was there. We see God in control of the heart of the king here, just like a second ago. The king is seemingly okay with these out-of-the-ordinary requests, and not only is he okay with it, like I said, he appears to be very at ease with it. All right, let's jump into six verse, or chapter 5, 6 through 8. And while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, Now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Esther replied, This is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you, and then I will explain what this is all about. In my mind, this is like the big ask or not. Like, we thought it was coming. It should have come, but it didn't. What do we see King Xerxes, like, he repeats his request. He extends his offer again. But what does Esther do? She puts it off. And instead, she requests what? Another banquet. So why? Like, why the delay? We've been hanging out with our guest, God's sovereignty, for a little while, and we're going to stay here for a little while longer. After all, this would probably be my favorite of all the guests, so let's hang out. This right here, these few verses are incredibly critical to the story. 
I would say my best answer to the why question is that God restrained her. There's conversation around, like, maybe she lost some courage and needed more time to get it back, and that could be true. God can use that. Uh, Maybe she had that feeling that we've all experienced when we've been in a room and we're like, hmm, like, something's not right. I don't think this is when I should do this. I don't think I should say this. Maybe I should wait. But what we are sure of is that God knew, right? God knew why we need to delay for 24 more hours. And if you do your homework next week, you'll know too. Plug for six. There you go. (laughs) We see in King Xerxes, we see God, right, in King Xerxes' reply to this delay. Because normally, I don't think the king gets told to wait. Right? I would say he usually gets what he wants when he wants it, and right then, right? No one is standing around telling the king, well, we're going to hold off on that till tomorrow. You know, so I would say his response to her here is another example to us of God's sovereignty in the story. Because what does he do? He guides their thoughts and decisions. Now we're going to go verses 9 through 13. Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. But when he saw Mordecai sitting in the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and did what? He went on home. (laughs) Then... Haman gathered his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the nobles and officials. Then Haman added, And that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she has prepared for us, and she invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. Then he added, But this is all worth nothing. As long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Okay. Remember our guest pride from before. Okay. We didn't spend much time there with him, but we are about to. And he's actually brought a plus one for us to meet. And that's hate. So fun. But, but, I'll give you a second before we get there. Before we get to chatting with them, Let's turn our attention to another guest, and that's faithfulness. You see, Mordecai is mentioned here. He's not actually at the banquet, but he is a huge part of this story. We see Mordecai's faithfulness throughout all of chapter 5, because without Mordecai's faithfulness, most of this story probably wouldn't be told this way. He drove Esther's bravery and courage to the party. He became friends with preparedness, and he included her. And this is very important for us to remember as we go into the next chapters here. Okay, you got your faithfulness friend down? We're going to go back to pride and hate. Verses 9, well, verse 9 in general makes me laugh. A little bit. What does he? What are the two emotions he feels in verse nine? Anybody remember? Kristen, I can see you. 
happiness and fury. And what do we notice about that? How quickly, how quickly he goes from one to the next, right? Ugh. So how is he feeling? Confused, I would say. I don't know if he knows that, but that's what it it looks like to me. I don't understand this in the sense of like, come on, you're second in command. You've got the king's heart in your hand a little bit. You've already convinced him to do something crazy. So what are you so upset about? This is one guy. This is one guy. You're taking care of all of them in a little bit. Like, what are we so worried about? I would say this just shows me how miserable of a man Haman probably was. He was honored by the king and the queen, yet one man, Mordecai, makes him forget all of that. And then verse 13 says what? What does he feel? Worthless. So he goes from feeling like high as a kite, the number two in command, I've got everything I could ever need, I'm going to boast to my friends and family about it, to feeling worthless. A Greek proverb says this, whom the gods would destroy, they first make angry. This is a great example to us at how empty the honors and the rewards of the world really are. We see a ton of insecurity here. And to make him feel better, he has a need for all to either fear him or accept him. But that need will never, ever, ever be met. And if that's what he needs to be happy, it seems to me like he will never be happy. We all want acceptance. (laughs) The need to be accepted is very, very real. But the problem with, with Haman here and with often our own hearts is that God intended for that need to only be met in one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. And if we seek it out in man like Haman did, we too will never be happy. Haman's surface level issue here was Mordecai, but it was not the real issue. The real issue for Haman and for mankind in general is the hole in his heart. His heart was missing something. You see, our souls were made only for God. And only God can can provide the acceptance and the joy that we truly, truly desire. So what does Haman do? In verse 10 and 11, or 10 through 12, really, he gathers his people and he boasts of all he has. And then in verse 13, he appears to be pretty resentful to me. You see, the pride in Haman's heart, the hate in Haman's heart, it kept him from enjoying all that he had already been given. I'm not sure if any of you have heard this proverb. Um, <laughs> probably, right? Pride goes what? Before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Pride is what turned Lucifer into Satan. I will cling to the highest heavens and be like the most high. 
And as dead flies cause even a bottle of perfume to stink, so a little foolishness spoils great wisdom and honor. Hate is poison. And in these verses, it seems like, I feel like, we're watching live as this poison infiltrates Haman's heart, vein by vein, and eventually it takes over. Five fourteen says, So Haman's wife Zeresh and all of his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands seventy five feet tall, and in the morning ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. I'm going to zoom in, so don't feel the need to know what that looks like (laughs) from out there. This is an ancient tablet depicting war of the time we're in. Okay, we're going to zoom in a second. There is a part on that tablet that shows us potentially what these poles look like and how they laid the men on them. So impalement was a method of execution used by the Persians, all of the ancient Near East actually, where a living body was pierced between the legs or in the solar plexus. I asked somebody today what that means, and it's like right here. My little nurse friends might know. Um, And then they were thrust upon it and pulled down. Um, Yes, there were worse images, okay? (laughs) I decided we're not going there today. It's Galentine's Day. Let's not. Um, But... The point of this, we read that it was 75 feet high, was public humiliation, slow death, because where they impaled them would not kill them immediately. Another interesting fact here is that at some point, obviously after this story, the Persians decided this was a little too inhumane, and they moved towards a different method, crucifixion. And this, the Persians, is where the Greeks and the Romans get the idea. Let's remember, the plan is already in place to kill the Jews. Haman didn't have to do this. But that wasn't enough, was it? Wasn't enough for him, and he made it not enough for his friends and his family. It says in there that it would please him to do this. Does any of it sound familiar? You see the same hate that propelled Haman to kill Mordecai in this way is the same hatred that we see in the hearts of those who called for Jesus' death on the cross. Hate is hate. It's not any different. God will use all kinds of circumstances, whether good or evil, to propel forth his purpose and his plan. He allowed Haman to erect these gallows to make this plan to kill Mordecai, and that seems awful to me. (laughs) He could have stopped it then and there, and he didn't. But that usually means he knows something I don't know. He's got something else coming. 
So let's look back at our guests. You'll notice some are left off. We have bravery and courage. We have preparedness, faithfulness, and God's sovereignty. We all want bravery and courage at the party. You know the kind that comes from God, the kind we couldn't have conjured up on our own. That is what feels good to us. Preparedness? Yes, please. I want to do the things I need to do to get ready for what God's about to do. Faithfulness, of course. I want to remember what God said and what he's done. All of these things I want with the understanding that what? God is sovereign. I want to remember that this is the way I'm supposed to live, rooted in Christ, using what he's giving me to influence others. But ladies, we cannot forget other other guests. And see, pride and hate, they don't come alone. The forces of evil at play in this story, and I'm just going to name a few, our excessive need to achieve, um, obsession of self, unforgiveness, greed. Haman is insatiable. And it was at this point in my studying that I felt the need that I might need to pause and think and ask God, what do you want me to take note of? And I have a feeling if he wants me to do that, he might want you to do that too. Because don't we share in the same tendencies as Haman? Because the reality of my life on this side of heaven is often I let pride be the first guest to arrive. As I was thinking about pride and the role it's played in my own life, that was fun. Um, I was trying to think of a situation to talk about today and kept bringing to mind, as long as I can remember, uh, yeah, it was for me. My parents had on the fridge the Proverbs verse, pride comes before the fall, haughtiness before destruction. That was placed there for me. So every time I opened the fridge, I would get to look at it. And as I was thinking about that and how I've always struggled with pride, I was talking to Stuart, my husband, and I said, oh, God, I just, but I can't think of a story about it. (laughs) And he was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, And I said, you know, I I do want to tell them about this, like, poster that was on my fridge that I looked at every day. And I said, so I probably could call my mom and dad and ask him about a story that would go along with that. And as quickly as those words came out of my mouth, so did, no way, I'm not going to do that. Um, Because why? Because I'm prideful. (laughs) I don't want to. That will not make me feel good. (sighs) Because pride's still my thing. It's not worked out. (laughs) It is my middle place. But... I'm not where I was with it. I'm also not where I'm going to be with it. God is moving me further from myself and closer to him. 
every day that I'm on this earth. Now, is that an excuse for me to just remain in the middle with my pride? Absolutely not. But it's a real example in my life of something that I, I let take hold of my heart. But because I have Jesus filling the hole, I can be different. Not on my own. Nothing, trust me, nothing I do works. But because God has decided to partner with me in that journey. So, when you think about this, where could pride be taking root in your own heart? I'm going to put a verse up on the screen. It's two slides. Um, I would like, if you can read it, I had to make it a little smaller. I would like for you to read it out loud with me if you are able. This is Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. You ready? This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by the long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. So God will use all kinds of circumstances, whether good or evil, to propel forth his plan. And this is where we're left with Haman. Haman has no idea the odds stacked against him right now. I mean, the last verse says he was pleased And while pride and hate are strong, bravery, courage, faithfulness, preparedness, God's sovereignty, I mean, if you're going to put them up against each other, who's going to win, right? I don't think he realizes it. But, once again, back to our theme, God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. Or, God is the purposeful author and hero of the story, the whole thing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for the gift of your son Jesus to save us and heal us. Lord, help us to remember who you are, what you're doing. 
Lord, thank you for inviting us into our lives of influence so that we can partner with you and do the work. We love you and we thank you. Amen.